Hi, this is Dave Vanderveen, and this is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. We are in Season 1, Episode 17. In this episode, we're doing an interview that I promised back in Episode 9, which was all about a film project I'm involved in titled Same God. It's a documentary about an African-American woman and Wheaton College professor, or former Wheaton College professor, who inadvertently, or inadvertently created a firestorm at that conservative Christian college outside Chicago when she worked a job in solidarity with persecuted American Muslim women at Advent and posted on Facebook. It's a bit of a mouthful, but that's, uh, that's the simple backstory. We'll get into a lot more of that in a second. The film's about what happened after that Facebook firestorm that became a national and international news story. It was over two years ago. And today we're interviewing that professor, Marisha Hawkins, another professor, Michael Mangus, who was caught up in that furor and Linda Midget, a Wheaton graduate from my own era at the school, who helped Larisha and Michael tell their story. But before we get into all of that, um, the Kick Aspirational podcast is about helping people break through barriers in their own lives, choosing ourselves and creating the life we want rather than the one that other people are, are offering us uh, so we can create the world we want to live in. And, um, and it's about creating our own opportunities. This all started, of course, because I've had thousands of people ask me how I did it, how my partners and I created a global brand with business owners around the world. And I assume when people ask that question, what they're really asking is, how can I create my own life? How can I create the world that I want to live in? And uh, so that's what we're trying to do here is is tell stories about uh, people who have broken through barriers in their lives and in the hope that it will help people figure out how to break through their own barriers and uh, maybe ask some bigger questions about where they're going and to live more <coughs> deliberately. So um, so let's kick this thing off. Uh, welcome, Larisha, Linda, Michael. Hey. Great to see all you Hi. guys today. Yeah, to thank here. you. Um, I thought, um, you know, maybe before we get started, I wanted to just say uh, the other thing was, you know, I think this, this podcast is off. It's really trying to build common ground with people. So... Um, um, so what I thought might be kind of good with this one is, um, you know, we're going to be talking about uh, race, religion, politics, things that um, on social Neither. media tend to isolate, <laughs> right? Yeah. And exclude. And, and I think the, we're all, hopefully, I think we're all fairly self-aware people that, that uh, trying. right, that all are trying. Um, and, and so... Not everyone who listens to this is going to agree with everything that we say, which is fine. Uh, we encourage discussion and disagreement. Um, but I, I think part of this, and, and maybe correct me here, but part of this is to try and create common ground and to create conversations. And so um, I thought maybe what might be interesting is if we started, since you know, this is, we're at the film festival in New Orleans. This is the second film festival Sam God has been at. Last night at... Uh, I guess you can't premiere twice, but it's the it's the second it's New Orleans premiere. Yeah. It's, it's the New Orleans premiere yeah. and the Southern premiere and the Louisiana premiere and the Louisiana premiere. And Linda, you live in Louisiana. I do. Yeah. And Larisha, you come from uh, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, you're a Northern white guy. I don't even know why you're here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are too. Joking. So I know. Totally, totally Northern white guy. And Michael and I are in the same bucket here. Yeah. Um, no, I'm kidding. But maybe we could start, Linda, with this, with this uh, kind of an overview of the movie. And then I thought I'd, we'd have Larisha tell, tell her story a little bit. And then, Michael, how you got caught up in it. And we, I've got some questions, but it's free form. Um, it's more about you guys telling your story than me asking questions. So does that sound like a good strategy? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, I will, um, I'll jump in and give you the, the synopsis of the movie is... Um, 
this story started in December 2015. And, um, yeah, I think it's important to rewind in our minds that um, things weren't quite as polarized then as they are now. Um, I feel like the genie wasn't quite out of, out of the bottle. Maybe she was, like, not going to get out. <laughs> so in hindsight, you can see, oh, there are signs that things are going this direction. But um, but we weren't there yet as a, as a culture and as a society. Things were, I think, bubbling under the surface. So um, in, in December 2015, the Republican um, primaries were heating up for the presidential campaign here in the United States, and um, the rhetoric really was taking a very sharp turn against immigrants and against uh, Muslims in particular. There was the San Bernardino shootings that had happened, which were horrifying to people, very frightening, and um, and it kind of just felt like as the people went further right, they were kind of trying to outdo one another and how um, harsh they could be against immigrants. And it was a real change in the public dialogue, and I noticed it um, as a filmmaker because one of the, the documentaries I've done in the past was on immigration reform. So this is a very long setup here to say that in the midst of that, Larisha Hawkins, Dr. Larisha Hawkins, decided to wear a hijab in solidarity with Muslim women as a way to just show that, um, that she saw the position that they had in society. So I noticed that headline, um, there was a little headline that said, you know, this professor at my alma mater was doing this and I thought that's nice and then I forgot about it. And then about two days later, I started seeing all of these headlines, like all of this furor that was happening because of that. And I just remember sitting and thinking, what? What is what is this? What's happening? What's are, this all about? Yeah, yeah. Why are people so angry? What are they so mm. upset about? And and so the the uh, controversy was a that she was wearing a hijab. B in her Facebook post, and I'll Larisha can talk more about this, but she had quoted Pope Francis, who the week earlier had said Muslims and Christians worship the same God, meaning that they are Abrahamic religions along with Judaism. So there was, there was one Abraham, yes. as far as we can tell, yes. and he had, that Abraham had one God, yes. and we're all descendants, whether you're Jewish or Muslim or Christian, you're all descendants exactly. from that, that, exactly. that father, single father. Yeah. To me, this was an obvious, sort of a religion one-on-one statement. This is a historical fact. Is this? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So... <laughs> There's it's not false news. <laughs> I know, exactly. If you literally believe the Bible to be true, then you literally believe that Abraham, there was one Abraham, and you literally believe there was one God. And, and I think, I mean, backing that up to another really good question, we were watching this film again last night. Um, I don't know how many gods people believe are out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are we polytheistic? Yeah. No, some, some are. Yeah, I have good friends who are Hindu, and yeah. you know, that's great. Um, but I think in the Christian community, we tend to believe in one God, hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And so I get confused sometimes which other gods people are talking about right. in the Christian faith. Right. But let's, we can get yeah. into more of that. Yeah. Part of what came out, too, is that uh, among Christians, it sometimes feels like we don't worship the same God. Right. There's a lot of, obviously, when you get into the, de yes. the details of how we express that, it's very different even within our own Protestant right. tradition. Right. Yeah. So um, this, this literally, this blew up into a global controversy. 
and people were writing about it, blogging about it, um, there was an enormous amount of hostility that was directed towards Larisha. And um, I frankly just became obsessed with the story. And um, David, you and I are part of a group of alums who um, were all talking about this and following every twist and turn. And um, so several weeks into it, it occurred to me, oh, this would be a great documentary, <laughs> you know, because there was this question of not just what was happening to her, but it's like, what is happening broadly? What What is happening from a cultural context? Why are people so bent out of shape about this? Um, and maybe why can't we hear each other? Yeah, yeah, and, and it was so polarized, and I was really fascinated by that. And again, that is the norm now for us, but three years ago, it was not. Three years ago, it was really striking. And so as somebody who went to the school, I was thinking... How, how is it that people like me look at it and think, like, obviously she's just trying to do a Jesus-y thing. It's like she's trying to be a good person. I mean, I, to me, this was sort of a no-brainer. And then to other alums, you know, she was a heretic. I mean, it was this, this horrible thing that she had done. And I felt like, how are we, how are we like, we read the same scriptures. Like, you know, we, we have all the same training, and we are we could not be more diametrically opposed in mm -hmm. how we are viewing this. And that really fascinated me. So that's that's when I started the project. That's when you, that was about two and a half years ago. It was three. Three years yeah, ago. Yeah, no, because this is, here we are in October. It was December 2015, so. Right, so yeah. it's almost so, three so years So it was three ago. years, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, Larisha, um, help, us, uh, help us understand the story a little bit. How it started, what you were thinking, I mean, why were you trying to create such a crazy... No, I'm joking. No. <laughs> what, uh, <laughs> this was a really tough, tough thing for you yeah. um, that you went through, and I'm, I'm not trying to make light of it. I just sometimes a little humor hopefully breaks Absolutely. it up. I, 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 I've seen this movie more than a few times, and I cried again last night while I was watching it because it was so, it's so powerful. And it's, it's not a... Obviously, I don't think you're trying to... It's not intended to get people... Um, to cry, but that's the story's no, really powerful. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Especially, then I've done my job. Especially white males over six feet. No, but the, um, so. Uh, <laughs> but Larissa, tell us, tell us, um, kind of the genesis of this. Mm -hmm. Why you decided to to wear a hijab? Why you decided to put on social media? Yeah. And how how that all kind of came together. Um, I think the what's interesting is. Um, on the one hand, there was a lot of forethought, and on the other hand, there wasn't a lot of forethought. Um, which is interesting because I'm a very deliberate, purposeful person. Uh, the fact that I grew up in evangelical, like the black church, and then also um, immersed a little in evangelical, white evangelicalism in college is interesting because it kind of plays into my natural predisposition to be a perfectionist, the the very uh, read your Bible every night and pray your prayers and do the right things. And um, so that preface to say, I'm a very deliberate person. Um, I, I My mantra is, don't steal this, I'm going to put it on a t-shirt someday. I have to plan to be spontaneous. Um, <laughs> so, so the seeming spontaneity of it is, is really out of step with the way the rest of my life plays out. And so, but as you'll see, I think that 
for me was confirmation that this was the thing that was supposed to happen in a strange way. So I um, essentially I um, had a student who was um, really caught up in the fact that um, in the wake of San Bernardino, there was so much backlash against um, Muslim bodies. And I, and I emphasize bodies because um, it's actually our bodies that are made, I mean, obviously our emotions, but um, the bodies of the most vulnerable in society are what mm. we're standing between, when we're standing between oppressor and oppressed, we're protecting bodies. Mm -hmm. um, the overemphasis on souls in evangelicalism um, and Protestant Christianity um, is one of the things that I emphasized in my teaching a lot. And so thinking about the vulnerability of bodies is really mm -hmm. another narrative that's important to emphasize. So the student wanted to do this very bodily thing. She said, Professor Hawkins, I'd love to wear the hijab. Um, home on the airplane, and she was in my senior seminar, capstone seminar at the time for political science students, and we were talking a lot about how do we transform these theoretical things that we learn, whether it's theological things, um, political theory, into you know action, so praxi. Um, and I said, and if I could jump in here, mm -hmm. so so this was a student, yes, kind of started this this concept. Mm -hmm. So she mentioned that, um, and this has been done before, actually, um, in Australia. There, there have been other places where women have um, donned a hijab before, um, for you know a short period of time or something like that. So um, we read an article, she and I, um, that this had occurred in Australia. You can look online. The Muslim Public Affairs Council invited women at some point to wear hijabs for a day to see how they were treated kind of as a social experiment. And, but the idea here was not a social experiment. And she said, I immediately said, oh, that's great. Christian college students were in the hijab home on the airplane since this was around Christmas, right? Um, it was finals. It was about to be finals week. I said, that's a great idea. She said, no, 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 not Christians. She said, all women. She's like, we have networks, you know, social networks. So, um, you know, my friends at Wheaton were connected to college women all over the world. And so... I said, oh, okay. Um, and I said, first, let me talk to a friend of mine who's on the board of the Council on American Islamic Relations to make sure this isn't considered haram, unclean, that it wouldn't be Offensive. an affront, yeah. yes, to Muslim um, sensibilities. <clears throat> um, not that one Muslim can speak for all Muslims, but the Council on American Islamic Relations is one of kind of authoritative institutions in the country, um, civil rights institutions, civil liberties. So um, he said, well, let me talk to some of the women on the board and get back to you. And he said, we received this gesture as, um, as, as the show of solidarity that you intended to be. Um, and it was interesting because the, the night that I posted, the day that I posted, I even emailed him back and said, you know, really, this is not about attention. Um, we'll just, yeah. And she said, no, 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 please do this. I mean, so I, I did have a hesitation for a minute. Hmm. But um, essentially, I uh, posted on Facebook, but my student did not end up wearing the hijab yeah. herself. And um, why didn't she? Um, I think she just got busy. It was final exam week. So I, I emailed her that it's a go. We have the confirmation that, you know, 
from my friend at the council. And then they also wanted to make it educational. So one of the things that they did um, when I talked to them, he suggested what we would like to do is hold a panel after Christmas break when they come back in January um, and have Muslim women who wear the hijab every day, some Muslim women who don't wear the hijab, and maybe a couple of your students and you who wore the hijab on the airplane um, and wore it back to Wheaton um, after Christmas break. I said, that's a great idea. Why didn't the professor think of that, right? Mm -hmm. So we were really excited about like we said, making this a, a show of solidarity, but also because we were at an educational institute, um, making that a learning. And I was—I had also started a peace and conflict studies program at Wheaton College, the first one in the history of the university, and it was our inaugural semester, and I thought this comports so nicely with our curriculum. It'll be the second major event. We had just, um, I had an event on how artists transform conflict that fall. So, um, and, and you're teaching political science, yes. which is applied philosophy. Right. It's applied politi mm -hmm. I mean, political philosophy and p political theory is, you know, political science is, is the difference between Edmund Burke and, and other philosophers of his mm -hmm. time is he actually applied it politically, right? Sure. So, I mean, the idea that you, that you would encourage your students to apply the ideas that you're having in the classroom mm -hmm. is completely in line with the discipline with your, the courses you're teaching, mm -hmm. and, and you're at a place, you're at Wheaton College, mm -hmm. which has a history of, I mean, it was founded by abolitionists, yes. right? So Christians who were opposed to slavery, who were actively fighting slavery. Wheaton was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Yep. Um, Wheaton not only uh, uh, was the first Illinois uh, higher learning facility, how do you, how do you say it, uh, the first college, mm -hmm. yeah, to admit an African-American man and graduate him. Um, was it during the Civil War or right, right after yeah, the Civil right War? That yeah. Um, so, so Wheaton itself has a pretty length, I mean, it's founded on this idea of social justice, mm -hmm. of leading from the front, of doing it from a Christian perspective. And, and yet, though, because I think this is important for the audience to know, Laricia was the first African American <laughs> female professor to have tenure at Wheaton in its 156-year history at that time. So the first African-American so, woman to be a tenured professor. Yes. Uh, so, and I think that's an important context uh, absolutely. for mm -hmm. people. Yeah. So it's, I mean, Linda, you and I were there about the same time. I think yeah. I was a year ahead of you. Yeah. Um, but I left a little ahead. earlier than yes. you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My departure was a little more abrupt. Yes. Um, but so when, when we were there, I mean, there were, you know, they, there was there were attempts to have people from different backgrounds at the school, but it was primarily a white Christian Protestant sure. college. Sure. I mean, there weren't a lot of African Americans. There weren't a lot of Asians. There were some. Right. But it was, you know, it was not what I would call fully integrated. Not, right. Not that anyone was, no one was excluded. It just wasn't part of the. I don't, know, I don't know how to explain it besides saying it was a very white place to go to college. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And it still is a white place to go to college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. White so. product. Yeah, it, it does have a very specific <laughs> culture, right? Yes. I yes. mean, it, it pulls hard from white Protestant mm -hmm. uh, evangelical Christianity. Right. That's, or from international Christianity. Sometimes that mean that was part of the problem is that whenever you talk about diversity, the, uh, most of the evangelicals were most comfortable talking about diversity from other countries or other continents, not... Not, not uh, from America. Right. Yeah, no, there was a, I was part of a, um, maybe too much of a segue, but that was part of this group when, um, when the new president came in, um, Reichen, and uh, Phil Reichen, and um, 
you know, they were talking about more diversity and becoming a more international school. And the cons- the conversation kept kept going back to bringing all these people to Wheaton, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And I was a little surprised by that. I said, well, you know, if you look at most universities around the world today, like when I'm in Doha, um, there's, you know, you'll see uh, Duke, you'll see, uh, uh, you know, all these, I mean, even, uh, there's just a lot of universities that are investing, you know, George, George, um, having a brain fade this morning, but uh, uh, Georgetown has a campus in Doha. Uh, there's all these great schools that are building. Johns Hopkins has a campus in, in, uh, in Abu Dhabi. I mean, there's a reason that all these schools are building campuses around the world because you can't bring everyone back to Just with decent immigration today, it's hard to bring students here. But secondarily, why don't we go out into the world and actually live in the world rather than try and bring people back to our bubble, I guess was kind of my question. So, so I'm... I've interrupted the story, um, but Lurishik, so, so, so help us, so this is the context that you're working in, right. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. A little tricky at times, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you've done something that's, I think, really profound. You've, you've encouraged, and, and it sounds like you didn't think it was going to be a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. no. this is, you weren't anticipating a firestorm no. over this. Well, and it's something that... Um Part of my own pedagogy as a political scientist, and pedagogy just means your teaching philosophy, essentially, um, is if political science is to be relevant to the real world, to move from theory and what I would say, how do we move from theoretical solidarity to actually embodying that solidarity in the world? I would, I would say to my students, I want you to be an embodied question mark in the world, um, always speaking truth to power, always... Um, even just by your very presence, even if you don't open your mouth, um, being being a testament and a witness um, in the in the in the vein of um, the prophets, um, like being um, calling us to justice, calling our society to justice, whether that's political elites, academic elites, right in the academy. You know, some research agendas um, in the academy um, are wrongheaded, actually, to the extent that. Um, they're not moving us as a society towards justice. So, and that's a controversial statement, but I mean, just think of bioethics. Um, And so I think that one of the things I was always trying to do was press the envelope um, towards that direction, um, to press students to actually engage experientially and in the world and then also demonstrate the possibilities because you know that as a professor you know tenure is the goal but you realize I mean for me what I realize I should say um, for me personally I was very honest with my students about the the tension I had as teaching them about justice and sitting on my ass in a classroom all day right <laughs> you know and so I was like I read books I write papers I go to conferences with people like me, this very closed scientific community where we talk to one another. And, and But my mantra that I wanted my research, my research agenda I feel is very relevant to current happenings, but it doesn't matter if I'm not getting my students um, and my own body out in the world um, to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly um, with God and the universe and, and people. And so um, pedagogically, I was always trying to move towards um, what does that relevance look like? And so one thing um, that I had my students do was um, invite them to go to, you know, uh, labor strikes with me, right? So um, 
I, I served on the board of a labor organization. And that very semester, I had two freshmen um, come to a Fight for 15 rally with me in downtown Chicago. I invited students to come. It was not an assignment. Um, two took me up on it. And on the train ride back, they said, Professor Hawkins, we realize that we're low-wage workers. We work on campus. Right. We are hourly employees, right? And so they realized that even though they're upper-middle-class kids from, I think, Seattle and Oregon, Portland, you know, little hipsters, that they, too, had an entree um, into the lives of these workers, not because they necessarily grew up um, living on those wages, right, on poverty wages because of their parents, but because as college students, they had an opportunity to think about what it would be like to have to live on the wages that they made serving ice cream at Wheaton College. So that was just, right. it was one of those experiences where the light came on because of their experience. They were like, we felt like fish out of water, and then all of a sudden, as we're talking, we realized that we do have a way of showing this So it was that, and the same woman who asked me um, about wearing the hijab that very same semester had asked me about how to show solidarity with immigrants because, as Linda said, the rhetoric was already at a fever pitch. And so I said, well, you know, MLK, um, near the end of his life, switched towards the, um, the Poor People's Campaign. And one of the things they did was um, not only march on the White House, but camped out on the Washington Mall in tents to bring attention to the plight of the poor. And I said, maybe that's an idea um, that you all could um, have kind of a solidarity, te solidarity tent camp um, mm -hmm. in solidarity with refugees. And uh, the student took off with the idea. Um, every tent was a different country that the students would learn about, and they slept um, all night out in the cold. It was the first major snow in Chicago. Oh, wow. And so it was snowing, and they brought in... Um, so it was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable. They brought in a speaker, and, and so I didn't help them with that part. I said, of course, you can't just sleep on the lawn in tents without getting permission from the university. So the next thing I know, she's like, this is what we've done. Um, you go to the Syria tent, you go to the Iraq tent, and you learn facts about the country. As a Christian school, they would pray for the country. Um, it was amazing, right? And um, so I called it, I, I wrote a blog about it. I called it Sleeping with Syrians, right? So um, I stayed, I stayed, I was like, I'm not going to sleep in the tent. Surprised that one didn't get, get picked up more. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? There's professors advocating, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was those aha moments for students that I lived for. So I just felt like wearing the hijab would be that. So I got home that night, um, Thursday, December 10th, and... I don't know what prompted me to do the Facebook post, but I did. I had a I had an after work meeting. Well, it's very visual, right? Yeah, and so I thought I'm gonna do this. So I put on the hijab, um, and I took a picture of myself in it, and I wrote this Facebook post to invite people into this narrative of embodied solidarity. Um, and like Linda said, I, I mentioned that. Um, and, and you structured that. That was a pretty articulate right. post that maybe not everybody reads. I think mm -hmm. in the documentary, one of the professors points out from Wheaton that not everybody always reads what somebody right. writes when, right. when they see an image. Yeah. And especially, you know, depending on people's known or unknown biases, mm -hmm. you know, you see African-American woman in a hijab. Mm -hmm. um, and then you read, if you just skip to the, you know, if people are just scanning, which is what they typically do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not justifying this, but this is, I think sure. this is kind of what happens, right? Absolutely. Um, 
but then they jump to same God. And all of a sudden people, rather than think about where the common ground might be, particularly on social media, and this is part of the problem of the medium, yeah. they instantly jump to, because criticism is a lot cheaper than, than, than creation, right? It's easier yeah. to be a critic. They jump to, why are we different? Why are you wrong? Why am I right? Yes. I mean, that's a very typical mm -hmm. facebook yes. stand response. Yes. Um, and I think that's what you, you ended up in the middle of. Yeah, and I, I want, what I wanted to be clear in the post was this was more about human solidarity than anything. Um, even though it was Advent, um, it should be sh clear for your listeners that a hijab is, um, it's not a Muslim, I mean, it's a headscarf. So some people will say Muslim headscarf. It's, <laughs> it's literally a scarf. Like, right. The and scarf it's not a that a Muslim woman it's wears is the no, same thing that I wear, right? right? So it literally is a scarf that I had in my closet that, by the way, the first scarf I wore was a what gift. What were you doing with Muslim scarves in your it closet? It was a gift from a week <laughs> college student by <laughs> She was on a Wheaton trip, and she bought me a scarf in Greece. So the scarf was from Greece. It was from a Wheaton college student. Um, it was in my closet. So it was a Christian scarf. It was, it was a Christian <laughs> So you took scarf. it out of the closet. <laughs> right. So I took it out of the closet. There's a lot of metaphors here. Um, so, yeah. And so um, so I took this selfie. And I always say, you know, if I had known the post would go viral, I would have taken a better selfie, damn it. Um, because it was like you know, almost 10 o'clock at night. I'd had a, a two and a half hour late night meeting. And... Uh, yeah, it just, you know, after working all day. And so I, I was like, yeah, I put on, I would have refreshed my makeup. Hello, you know, so <laughs> I put the post on. Um, but I did think about the post, like what I wrote, the content of the message. And I started with, uh, I love my Muslim neighbor, not because she or he is American, but because they are humans, um, essentially uh, form, form from the same primordial plate that's later on in the post. It's not in the very first sentence, but the idea is the commonality comes from the very fact um, that we, um, I think that we're one humanity, which means we're essentially one, one being, right? I mean, yep. we're all the same. Um, and I want to emphasize our uniqueness as well. I'm affirming the dignity of my Muslim brothers and sisters by saying, I believe we're one. And that, that was the primary goal. And the, you know, we're all religion was of God, last, right? right? I yeah. was like, and I, you know, I don't love my Muslim neighbor because he or she is a religionist necessarily, but uh, I wanted to affirm that the commitment was to our shared humanity and, and only secondarily um, because we worship the same God. The message really was um, embodying solidarity with a persecuted group um, because number one that's what we do that was my pedagogy I told them I will wear the hijab at school because I wanted to model that for them and the reason I decided to wear it all throughout the Christian season of Advent which goes through January right. actually in the Christian calendar it's the not just a Christmas thing yeah. it's not just up till Christmas you know <laughs> people light their little Advent wreaths until Christmas Day but it goes beyond that you know um, so I I really did want it to be, for me, a practice of religious devotion. Also because as professors, Christmas is our busiest time. Mm -hmm. um, and I have to make myself remember the reason um, for that season. But the incarnation um, of Christ, as we believe in Christianity, um, is really God walking amongst us. Um, and embodying solidarity with us because we're vulnerable and weak and seeing us in our weakness and having 
compassion. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And I think this is why Jesus, to my friends who are not necessarily Christian, um, and why Jesus is revered amongst Muslims as a prophet who walked amongst other people um, and who saw them in their vulnerability and who um, said, go above and beyond. Uh, lay down your life uh, for uh, the other, if you will. Um, and I don't think Jesus saw anyone as other. Jesus just saw people in their oppression. But mm -hmm. we otherize people. Um, Muslims are not the other. And what I said in the post that may also have been controversial, Muslims are my brothers and sisters, right? Um, and I think well, some it's, Christians it's, it's the hear equivalent that. of the Samaritan today, right? right? I mean, if, if you actually read the gospel story, I mean, the groups of people that Jesus spent most of his time with versus the ones that he was fighting with most of the time. The religious leaders are the ones he was typically fighting with. Right. That's what he, when he talked about hell, it was primarily for the religious leaders. It was almost never for, I don't think it was ever for the Gentiles or for the non-believers. But secondarily, I think the thing that's kind of interesting is Jesus focused on going out and reaching out to these, particularly Samaritans. It came up in his parables, in his actions, um, tax collectors and prostitutes. Um, you know, it, it just seemed, if, if there's one person who kept reaching out across the border, across the otherness, mm -hmm. you know, that was when God became man, when, when God wanted to, if, if we believe that Jesus was God, you know, not everybody does who's listening to this, but if, if you start with that assumption that, you know, Advent is when God becomes man in order to understand and embrace who we are as people, as part of the creation, um, and then when God comes here, so, you know, let's assume that Jesus was God and God did walk among us. If you, if you assume that, um, you know, God spent a lot of time trying to reach across the borders. Mm -hmm. It seemed like most of God's time was trying to reach across the borders, not create more rules, not, you know, here you got God who can say whatever God wants to. You're here now. And whenever the religious leaders are like, well, what about this? You know, it's never a black and white answer. It's never binary. It's always, let me tell you a story. Because the truth of what I'm going to try and tell you will never fit into the binary construct you've created, right? Mm -hmm. This true or false, this yeah. yes or no. Yeah. Anyway, so I think it's what's profound. I mean, there's a lot of things that are profound about what you did. And, and I think the unintended element is really fascinating because there was, this wasn't intended to be some big demonstration or big reactionary kind of device. It was a very simple, well-intended uh, action, which was... Yeah, how do we live in solidarity with this persecuted minority among us? How do we reach across the border during this Advent season when this is literally what Advent's about? Not about presents and Christmas trees. It's about reaching to, reaching somebody that doesn't doesn't have help, that doesn't have support, that is a immigrant, that is a you know being persecuted. You know, like Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt as an example, um, as illegal immigrants. Um, so I think it's, it's just it's an absolutely fascinating. Thing. So you post this um, with very little, uh, with, with no negative intention, with not a whole lot of, I mean, you, you deliberately, it sounds like you were writing the post for your students almost. Is that, is that kind of right? I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the, the reality <laughs> is I was, in a sense, I was writing perhaps for my students. That's, that's probably one, one part of the audience anyways. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think also for all women, mm. um, because... One of the things that I also did was I posted to the Wheaton College Women faculty page to let women 
on faculty know about it. That it was going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the next day, I believe one or two women wore a hijab on campus. Oh, wow. Um, but they're and, still at the school? And some women, yes. <laughs> and, and some women students. I'm not sure how many people knew because they put it on Facebook, right? Yeah. But um, I know of at least one who did. And I think, um, I think just to add to our previous conversation, the other thing that strikes me about what Jesus did in you talking about Samaria, Samaria was an area that no self-respecting Hebrew would have gone through. They walked around, they literally made a detour around Samaria. Right. If they could have built a wall around it, they would have. They would have, because Samaritans, for those of you out there, don't, don't get bored, this is interesting, was considered, were considered unclean. Um, and so they were considered half breeds, right? Um, they weren't mixed fully, race. Yes, right? they half were mixed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so these mixed race folk uh, were, if you want to say, untouchable. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that Jesus took his, you know, uh, ragamuffin band of followers through Samaria and became ritually unclean by and doing became so. unclean by doing so, and he does this throughout. Imagine if we had Gospels. Facebook back then. Right. <laughs> Imagine. He might have been crucified more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the you got to make it 33 years, <laughs> man. <laughs> That's why God waited. Uh, he did it then and not now. <laughs> right. Right. He wouldn't have lasted a day on Twitter. <laughs> but it, Sorry, Larissa. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> it's hilarious. But I think there's an important point about place. So placing and positioning ourselves amongst the most vulnerable. And so I think for part of what this was about was an invitation to friends, colleagues, um, to do that, to place themselves amongst the most vulnerable in our society, Muslim women, um, many of whom have been our neighbors for a long time. It's not just a recent influx of immigrants from, quote unquote, the Middle East, um, you know, there have been Muslims in this country since the founding. Um, and so I think it's really important to note that that point about place and that Jesus' incarnation was also about suffering with. It's not just this little baby in a manger who was God. It's also that that baby came to suffer and die. So God could have beginning. empathy, right? So yeah. God could have empathy because Jesus would have no empathy if Jesus had not suffered like we suffer. Mm-hmm. And so... Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus was a low-wage worker. And so that's what I was trying to um, embody literally in the writing of the post and to make an invitation, not just to other Christians, but to all people to embody solidarity with um, a group that was being particularly oppressed. And so, yeah, that's the background. That's why I did it. Um, But you're right, to invite students in, to invite colleagues, to invite everyone um, into, all women, into that narrative if they felt that they could, that they could join. So. And I think part of the challenge is you can't put all that on Facebook. So the <laughs> all people, right. you know, so you have people see your image, same God. I mean, so people reacted to your image and same God, mm-hmm. primarily, it seems like, correct? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and I will, sorry, that my compulsion to, like, tell yeah. the story, but... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what was fascinating is that her in, her intent, the spirit that she just described very eloquently, um, you know, all of this beautiful meaning completely went out the window 
and the focus became on those two words, same God. Mm -hmm. And that Muslims and Christians worship the same Mm -hmm. God. That's Mm -hmm. all that people saw. Mm -hmm. It is all that they talked about. And quickly, that question of do Muslims and Christians worship the same God eclipsed everything that she just described. It was non-existent. It was as though she had done this simply to poke the bear, Mm -hmm. you know? And and you specifically quoted Pope Francis, who for 50% of Christianity is literally orthodoxy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, not everybody, I know that some um, very conservative Christians don't find Roman Catholicism Mm -hmm. to be Christianity, although that's just kind of absurd, in my opinion, because Mm -hmm. the fact is, the world views Roman Catholicism as you know 50% of Christianity by definition. So we can people can argue about that. I don't really care. But the I mean, you are quoting one of the most orthodox characters in Christianity when you say when when you're quoting Pope Francis on that. And I think that was wise. Um, but also at Wheaton, that could be a little tricky. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. that's an important yeah. point because we're not talking about because you're saying yeah for Christianity this should have been. Not that big a deal, but we're not talking about just all of Christianity. We're talking about a very narrow, small band, of, yeah. a subculture within Christianity of conservative evangelicals. And, and that's, that's be, really who reacted. This is about the time that you jump into the story, right? This is yeah. you saw this post, you saw maybe some of the furor and reaction, and you jumped into the conversation. How did this happen? I, I actually you didn't, see, in? I didn't okay. see any reaction yet, but I saw her post and. I found it really inspiring, and I wanted to just really support that, and so just commented on the page saying. Um, if you get any grief at work, because we both taught at Wheaton, give me a heads up because I'm going to be teaching Islamic prayer in my spring class. And this wasn't a private message. This was no, literally was on a, the post. Literally, yeah. A, a public com- comment on her page, yeah. And, and, and it was, was literally true, but it was also a little bit flippant because I knew that wording, I'll be teaching Islamic prayer. I knew that was vague enough. That was really probably going to upset some people. <laughs> and in that sense, I, and by and by saying you know, give me a heads up if we get crap at work. I, I I thought she would probably get some grief about the post. I didn't know it would turn into this firestorm. huge firestorm. Yeah, or but, that you'd get pulled into it. And so, and what, what, what's your background at Wheaton College? Um, I had been at that point uh, about twenty five years. By the time I left, it was twenty seven years that I had been teaching at Wheaton, and I also was a Wheaton undergrad like you guys. And what did you teach at Wheaton? I taught in the psychology department and uh, the master's program in counseling. So you, you'd done that for almost 30 years by the mm-hmm. time you are finished. Mm-hmm. And um, you want to, you guys can jump in if you want to take this in a different direction, but do you want to help us understand a little bit about um, kind of where this, where this brought you into the story and what happened yeah. to you because of it? So you, yeah. you, had, a, you had a little history with... Um, Heresy at Wheaton, is that right? I have a history with heresies, I would say. Well, well, maybe I'm getting ahead of us, but as this firestorm picked up and people knew that you had been in, you know, you had posted Mm -hmm. on the page, um, the provost, who's a good friend of, who was a good friend of yours, kind of jumped into this. Right. And um, said, hey, we need some help or something, is that right? Because, of course, people saw my comment coming on on the bottom of same God and thought, oh, there's a Wheaton faculty member who's teaching... Um, Muslim faith at Wheaton. So again, people just reacted to it. Well, you, and you should explain also what you, what, what were you actually teaching? What were yeah. you referring to? Yeah, my spring class I was referring to, I was at that point teaching uh, psychology of religion. And in, I literally in the class did teach about Islamic prayer and, uh, and on the theme of embodiment, one of the things that um, I wanted pe- the students in the class to experience and learn about was 
what how it's different to have embodied prayer and that's one of the things that I respect and admire most about Muslim brothers and sisters is the the embodiment of their prayer and and that's the image that comes to mind when you think of Muslim prayer is the salat uh, bowing putting forehead on the floor five times a day things. yeah the call to prayer the actual the, yeah. the process of getting into the mosque to pray and then the prayer that actually far more occurs. devotion than most evangelical Christians have I think. Anyway, so in, in the class we would talk about that. And also, this is a shared history of embodied prayer. It's not just Muslims that do this, but Muslim uh, Islam started out of Christianity. And at, at, in the first church, that kind of prayer, that kind of embodiment of prayer and bowing and, and humbling oneself was as much a part of Christian uh, communities as it was any other. So, Can, can you explain that, that comment, um, Islam started out of Christianity? Yeah, on the film, one, one of the uh, theology profs talks about the fact that uh, for the first uh, oh, uh, appearance of, the, of Islam, it was considered to be a sect of Christianity, basically, uh, and, and because Christianity was seen as kind of a heresy out of Judaism, uh, this was just taking it one step further in terms of it was considered to be part of the same group. And this is about the seventh century. This is about this is just after Muhammad had his crusades and was, or I don't know how you want to explain it, but his some of his holy wars, jihads, and was um, crusades probably a terrible description of a jihad. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're mixing your metaphors. Yeah, I'm mixing my metaphors. But you know, he was so. And I'm not, I'm not an expert on on Islamic history, but I, so this is kind of it's around. 600 AD, late 600 AD, probably early, late 7th century, I'm guessing, and you started to mm -hmm. see some of the church fathers saying, wait a minute, because there was a lot of, there was the Manichaeans, were a lot of different ideas popping up around what Christianity meant, mm -hmm. and the church was trying to, I think, in a lot of good ways, get their arms around, wait a minute, what do we actually believe um, as, a, as a, you know, as a body of believers? What do we, what do we agree on? What do we disagree on? Where's our common ground? Where, what are the boundaries on that? Some of it got a little crazy, but... Um, <laughs> later mm -hmm. but uh, but at that time so Islam started as was viewed as a Christian sect mm -hmm. and some of the church fathers started to say wait a minute there's some differences here with what other Christians believe or other non-Jewish <laughs> non-traditional Judaist believers. And in fact well, if you talk to Muslims um, they they um, believe in and revere Jesus um, in fact um, he's, he's one of the great prophets right well and and the Messiah I mean the the I don't know theologically how Muslims view this, but if you ask any Muslim who's the Messiah, they'll say, well, Jesus. It's the, the two words go together. The, uh, one of the, so one of the nonprofits I was a, a part of, you know, Growers First, we work with a lot of rural, poor, high-altitude coffee farmers, and um, one of the uh, people I got to work with, Glenn Parrish, uh, has done a lot of work around the world with different uh, nonprofit organizations, and one of them works in the Philippines to bring peace together between Christians and Muslims because it's very political, not just uh, it's hardly religious at all, kind of like Absolutely. almost like Ireland, right? Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how there's mosques in in southern Philippines where um, they literally read out of the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, very literally worship Isa, you know, Jesus' name in in Islam, mm -hmm. but they're Muslim because to say you're Christian puts you on a different side of the fence yeah. and it disrupts everything in your yeah. world. Yeah. So it's, it's, the belief is consistent with what we would typically view as a Christian belief, even though mm -hmm. the culture from the outside looks very different. Mm -hmm. 
which is kind of, I think, the element of Christianity that's been consistent over time, how we've picked up whatever culture we're in rather than try and change that, just change Absolutely. the seed out. Do, um, so in this case, so, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to go too deep on this, and I, I have severe ADD, so I get, if you say squirrel, I'll, I'll run out the door. Um, so as, as we're talking about this, um, so Christianity, I'm sorry, Islam starts as a, from a Christian point of view, as a Christian sect, maybe Muslims might think a little differently about it, but that's how we view it sitting here today. Um, and uh, take, us, take us forward from there, sorry. Well, I'm still learning these things too, just from, from other people who studied it far more than me. Uh, but, um, well, what, what I really intended from that post and actually was doing in my class, in my spring class, was uh, learning about this kind of prayer and wanted students to experience, so what is it like to embody your prayers instead of just for them to be uh, a mental thing, even silent? And uh, my favorite uh, thing to say about that, it, the first time I did that in class, we uh, we kind of modified uh, the, uh, the the Muslim salat with because that in a in a mosque it would be done in Arabic. I don't know about Arabic. My students didn't either, so we did uh, kind of a version of uh, the Lord's Prayer using the same body movements and bowing. And one of the students afterwards said, "It's really hard to feel very full of yourself when your forehead's on the floor and you're saying God is great." Yeah. It forces you to focus on God. I mean, I think C.S. Lewis talked about this a lot, that mm -hmm. he talked about the importance of getting on your knees to pray. Yeah. Because the physical act, like the embodiment, the physical act of doing this forces your body in a posture that requires your submission. Yeah. I mean, it seems, seems like we're kind of going down the same path here, if I'm understanding yeah. you correctly. Yeah. Um, so, so you, you jump in and, and say something which, of course, gets taken out of context a bit too. Yeah, the whole, the whole idea that I was teaching Islamic prayer was, again, a knee-jerk reaction for a lot of people very upset about that. Why are you teaching so I, Christian kids at the school to become right. Muslims? Yeah. yeah. So I got contacted by the provost. <laughs> it's almost comical, frankly. I mean, yeah. And, uh, you know, actually because the provost and I have been friends for years, he, he texted me. I mean, that's how we knew each other. He just texted me on my, on my, my cell phone and, and said, I've just sent you an email. Please take a look as quick as you can. And that's why I read it. And he said, um, the, your comments are being taken as <clears throat> Wheaton College affirming Islam as equivalent of Christianity, and so we need to do something about this to, to get this under control. And uh, I, I recognize this very quickly of when, when these kind of things happen in that culture, uh, because I've, a lot of my work uh, in psychology uh, has been around studying the evangelical culture and authoritarian cultures in general. Uh, and I recognize right away, this is a, a white patriarchal thing that's happening here. I'm getting pulled up short for something I've done and saying that you're, you've embarrassed us. And so I immediately, the way I'd say it is I, I immediately uh, groveled, uh, like a, you know, roll over and expose my stomach and my throat. Uh, and I, so I, I just started saying, I'm so sorry, I never intended for that to happen. Of course, people would take things out of context like that. I should have anticipated that. But I was very apologetic, and I said, what can I do to help? And, uh, and so, who wants to take the story from here? Because I think this is where it gets really yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, the provost basically helped Michael, um, Dr. Mangus, mm -hmm. craft a letter um, mm -hmm. that could be released to the press. Um, you know, to sort of quell the controversy. 
Um, and I don't believe you guys ever. It wasn't even necessary to release that, was it? Not if, I just, no. it could have been. Not as far as I know. No. Yeah, I don't think that um, it ever was released. But they they had it ready. Michael had you know apologized basically. Everything was copacetic with him mm -hmm. and the school. Mm -hmm. um, not so much for Larisha at right. that That's point, right. because Larisha, in contrast, had never been contacted by the administration at this point in the story. So Michael made the comment. He immediately sort of gets the support and help of how to get out of it, if you will, how to mm -hmm. tamp yeah. this down. And Larisha, Larisha well. is kind of flying solo. Mm -hmm. Um, while so, so, all so, hell is breaking loose. So you don't know this is going on, Larisha? No. And, Michael, you're working with Stan Jones, the provost, who's your friend, mm -hmm. to kind of come up with a strategy to settle things down a little bit and, right. and calm it down. Right. Um, Affirming, I am a Christian. Sure. It's interesting. The first paragraph he sent is a suggestion, let's start with this as a draft of what you could say to the public. It's, it's that I'm the And this is what Christian. he wanted you to say. Mm -hmm. This is You weren't crafting this for Larisha. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so, did and you then, reach and out to Larisha about Larisha at that point? But in his response to my to the first email and sending that paragraph, he said, "Larisha said something equally innocuous, but it's turning into a really big storm, basically." So he immediately reached out to protect you, mm -hmm. uh, one of his buddies. Yep. And um, and equated it to what I didn't realize was going on with Larisha, but he called what she did equally innocuous. So what we what we did was equivalent, but. And, and as, as this became a national news story, um, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here, but as this became a national news story, uh, first it started in the, in the Chicagoland area, mm -hmm. then it jumped into, and how'd that happen, by the way? So, how did- it, it just spread like wildfire in the rest of the world. I started hearing from alumni around the world and, and evangelicals in general around the world. I started getting hateful messages, I know you did too, and some threats even. How, how fast, how fast did that happen? Like hours, days? Uh, a couple days. Immediate. I got immediate, um, mm. yeah, threats and, yeah. But the reaction was really swift. Um, mm -hmm. I think within, um, so it was a Thursday night at 10 o'clock that I posted. I had a full day of, it was the last week of class, so teaching my last two classes, um, thesis defense, I think the school was turning over, you know, a, um, software or something, and so we had to, like... You had to migrate software? Yeah, migrate, and, and I didn't... I waited till the last day, and so I spent half of my day trying to, like, figure out the migration, but it was, like, really a fake deadline, you know? It wasn't really the drop-dead deadline, but I thought it was, and, and I also hadn't read the thesis yet that I was, you know supposed to sit in on the defense, so I was reading an 80-page thesis and doing all of those things, mm -hmm. and I realized I had um, a LinkedIn message from MSNBC, um, which just to me was like, this is preposterous, like, this is not about media attention, was my, you know, um, right, right. which shows you, like, really, like, how naive I was about how viral it had gone at that point. And, and who was telling your story, right? Right. And so... Um, I I just kind of immediately that was the th the best thing I could think of on the fly like yeah I don't this isn't about attention and I and even so I mean I could talk to you but I have a thesis defense in an hour so um, so it was just kind of put it off thinking nothing about it and plus I was babysitting right after the thesis defense and so so those are your priorities you know, these are yeah. my priorities <laughs> I don't have time for this I'm like babysitting my, my poor <laughs> my poor like colleague 
you know, <laughs> professors aren't wealthy, so uh, I babysit for these friends of mine when they want to go on a date. So I was like, I'm hanging out with two little girls tonight in the hijab. <laughs> so uh, literally, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, I just got to get through the last day of classes, babysit. <laughs> Some kids and uh, what did the little the, the, how, how old were these little girls? What did they think about your hijab? They were eight and three, I think three or four. I think she was four at that point. And the little one said, um, "Her name is uh, Naomi, um, Noemi. Excuse me. I have a Naomi friend, little friend, and Noemi, Simone and Noemi, um, my littles." And she said, "What's that on your head?" And I explained to her that it was um, it was just a scarf. And she's like, why are you wearing it? And I told her, and she said, oh, okay. And so she went back to coloring her picture of a cat, right? Um, and she just understood, like, when I explained why, like, that I was wearing it in solidarity. She didn't question that, right? Why, why shouldn't we stand up for people? Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but as Larisha is, you know, babysitting and reading her thesis and really going along her merry way, um, you know, donors were calling into the school and threatening to stop sending money to the school. Um, people were calling and saying, we're going to pull our children out of mm -hmm. the school because the narrative that had quickly, that was spreading, mm -hmm. and Larisha was oblivious to this, was that, you know, there's a there's a Muslim at Wheaton College, you know, a Christian college. <laughs> who, I mean, that's the narrative that's happening, that she's a Muslim. Mm -hmm. She doesn't understand who Jesus is. She mm -hmm. doesn't understand the difference between Islam and Christianity. You know, I mean, that's that's the narrative that, that is happening. That was the story people were picking that is, up. That is telling. the story yeah. that is all over the world within 48 hours. That's how mm -hmm. quickly it right. happened. So. And I have to, and I'm just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this in. is one of the things that has, yeah. it's, this is, I've thought a lot about this as I've done the film, but I'm amazed at the lack of curiosity that people have. Mm. I, I, I am truly amazed yes. that people think Anyone who knew who knows anything about Wheaton College would the, not the staff, occur to yeah, yeah, the, would the they not professors. think like clearly there's more to the story than what's yeah. being you know this yeah. doesn't even make sense this is nonsense why would you jump to this conclusion yes right yes like, I why would you assume that a Wheaton College professor who has to sign a statement of response of, of faith every year who has decided to be in this community. Is is trying to convert people to Islam? What exactly. what on earth would would, would bring yes. you that to, to that conclusion? By the way, particularly if you just went to Facebook and read the statement. Yeah. I know, I right? know. But you'd actually have to read the statement, and you'd actually have to you know digest it, and you'd actually have to not just not just react, which is yes. I think the fundamental issue. Is, yes. And I think this is a, a an interesting question about social media, particularly Facebook, because Instagram doesn't have the same ability to. It's it's a different structure, right? It's a different platform. But Facebook in particular, and Twitter, I would guess, you know, is, is, has kind of the same flare-ups. But Facebook goes, you can go deeper on Facebook yes, because yes. you can put more characters yes. and things like that. Um, it really seems to, and, and it's an interesting question that I'd like, you know, feedback on. Do you agree that Facebook tends to incite binary reaction or just reaction in general? I don't know if it's binary all the time. Um, and, you know, yes or no. If yes, why? If no, why? But what do you think? I mean, does... Do you think, and, and you know, I'm not trying to, hopefully don't take this like I'm thinking anyone did anything wrong. I'm just wondering why, you know, from maybe from a psychological perspective, from a political science perspective, from a, from a communications perspective, mm -hmm. you're all experts in those fields. Mm -hmm. Why do you think people do that? I, I, I mean, my, I, I want to hear what you guys have to say about this, mm -hmm. but 
um, this question of whether Muslims and Christians worship the same God, it it hit a nerve with people. Right? It's, it's so really a it, much bigger issue. It, than, it, it yeah. hit a tender spot with mm -hmm. people. That I understand, and I'm very sympathetic towards, right? Yeah. What What is fascinating to me is that it hit a tender spot, and instead of people saying, wow, I've never thought about that, which I personally had never thought about that. I mean, I will say that. So, you know, I don't walk around thinking about these things all the time. <clears throat> mm -hmm. It never really crossed my mind. So that when I asked, when the question was raised, I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. Rather than people saying, gosh, I never thought about that, people immediately jumped in with, well, that just can't be true. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that. You know, and, and, or, or, the, and or they said, you know, well, don't you understand the difference between how we worship yes. in Islam and how we worship in Christianity? Yes, right? and, and so there's a lack of um, there's a lack of curiosity. Mm -hmm. There is um, an inability or an unwillingness to take the time to think that through. Mm -hmm. And what are the questions? So I, I find this this is happening in social media with the film. There are certain people who keep beating that horse. They will post every every week. They're like, you know, Jesus is the Son of God, and that's the difference. And it's like, well, no, that's yes, a, we know. But, no, no, I've <laughs> said that. said it 25 are you, times. Like, who are you, you arguing with? Yeah, exactly. It's like, we're in agreement. Yeah. Like, you don't mm -hmm. even see that there are bigger questions. And, and mm -hmm. even though it's been explained to you repeatedly, because I know I personally have come up on this and yeah. I said, hey, you know, like, phone? Dr. Hawkins actually does believe in Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I've explained all this repeatedly. They don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. They're they focused don't on the hear. difference. They're yeah. focused on the difference, and they're focused on, um, they are so focused on what separates us. And right. there's a real arrogance that I think is just being exposed in people on social media, mm -hmm. that their, their, their knee-jerk response is simply to find the hole in your argument and try and poke a hole there because it makes them then look like the smart person. And then focus on defending that. Yeah. yeah, people want to be upset. They do. Just, it feels powerful. So it's, do you think it's the anger emotion that's driving it? I think I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, <clears throat> I I was raised in evangelicalism, <clears throat> beginning in a very fundamentalist church in my childhood, and and I feel like uh, for those whole fifty years, I was taught always every time you open your eyes, be looking to judge, judge some find something to judge as wrong and and, and distinguish it from right. So there's just always this kind of knee jerk. There are da dangerous things out there. We have to judge quickly and and always. It's frustrating. Are, you, are any of you familiar with um, Marshall Rosenberg's book, uh, Nonviolent Communication? Mm -hmm. A little bit. So it's when Satya Nadella came in as the new CEO at Microsoft, it's one of the books he made the entire company read because the company had all this infighting. Mm -hmm. And he wanted people to focus on, how they, focus on how they could work together, not how they could take over different territory or build different castles and you know stuff mm -hmm. that happens in big companies. Um, and it's a very simple concept that when you're communicating, you don't use judgment because he Marshall finds that violent. Mm -hmm. Instead, he says, and he uses puppets, and it's a really interesting psych psychological workshop that he does. You can find it on YouTube. But the simple idea is that you focus on stating only observ observable facts, which is actually pretty hard to do. Mm -hmm. we, all, we all love to jump to judgment. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if, if that would be helpful in this kind of a setting. Mm -hmm. Well, I think on one of the things that's, I think there are a lot of things I think about social media, and, and I think the mediums are all different. You mentioned Instagram earlier. I mean, it's it's limited and, you know, people love it or hate it. Um, Twitter, similarly, um, 
And Facebook is very unique in that it's the first form to catch on, um, broadly speaking. Um, I like it because it crosses generations. My 87-year-old granny has a Facebook mm -hmm. page. <laughs> right. Um, and I think what's true, what was true for me, I will say, is that Facebook was a way to remain connected to family and friends, and especially mm -hmm. friends I haven't seen in years. But then also, in particular, as a political scientist and at Wheaton College, we took very seriously um, the goal of being nonpartisan. So my Facebook page, I never saw as a space for part intensely partisan or intensely intensely ideological content. Right. Um, and so that's important to note that I had colleagues who would, um, I had a colleague who posted when Obama won um, a picture of Big Bird saying, take that bitches, right? Um, <laughs> I didn't know Big Bird had said that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Big Bird just retired and Big Bird said, Now Big, Big Bird can say anything <laughs> Big Bird wants to. You know? I'm not even sure what gender Big Bird is, but yeah. <laughs> but it's, I, you know, I had, uh, I had colleagues, you know, this is neither here nor there, but just an example. Um, one, wearing a Speedo on Facebook. I mean, so, I'm just talking about... I posted a feed of Bruce, of Bruce Benson in a Speedo. But <laughs> okay, oh, right. <laughs> but just the, I just say that to say, um, there, there are various standards by which certain people tend to um, apply to their Facebook mm -hmm. um, kind of sharing. And mine was meant to be, to the extent that I posted about issues, they were justice issues, and things that I thought globally important, um, and the kinds of things that I taught my students in the classroom, and not because I wanted them to be Republicans or Democrats. I'm a political scientist. I think they're the same party. Right. <laughs> um, economically, um, on the things like inequality, you know, mm -hmm. um, so, social so, so, issues different, right. but I'm saying that to say uh, I'm not... I was, I'm not a political scientist to indoct, indoctrinate my students about politics, um, the great myth that professors make their students liberal. I hope that I complicate things so that my students are both more liberal and more conservative, if we want to use those binaries, when they leave my classroom. Right. That um, I had a student tell me just this week, I thought I was super pro-choice until I, until I started reading bioethics. Yeah. And I'm like, you're the right kind of human already. You're, you're asking the right questions. You're 18 yep. and yep. you're all, you see it already. Like, you're wrestling with I'm it. I'm not worried about this kid, right? I'm like, you're the kind of kid that I want everyone to become when they're at school. I'm teaching towards transformation mm -hmm. of lives, like individuals and the world. And um, I tell my students all the time, if all you learn from me is to see other people created in God's image, um, then you've learned enough. And, and that was one of the things I, I loved at Wheaton was, you know, I was a poli-sci major, right? Mm -hmm. And I did, I worked at the American Enterprise Institute, which is kind of moderate, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, at least when I was there, you know, we had Norm Ornstein, we had Irving Crystal, we had Gene Kirkpatrick, who was a Democrat, you know, worked mm -hmm. for Carter. Um, I worked for Susie Garment, but the, you know, while I was working there, there was a big Nation of Islam rally that I really wanted to go see. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by the Nation of Islam and, um... And, and Susie Garman encouraged me to go. Mm -hmm. um, I was, I counted, I was one of seven white people out of 17,000 nice. 
but it was, but it was, I think it was because I came from a place where we were encouraged in that department, right. whether it was Mark Amstutz or Ashley Wood, it was I mean, two very different political persuasions or, or, um, Bud Kelstead, mm-hmm. you know, encouraging us to explore right. and to ask questions right. and to, and to challenge the assumptions we were born into yeah. and yeah. to dig deeper. Right. Back in the day when Art Holmes was saying all truth is God's truth. Right. And I, I was a philosophy major as well. I used mm-hmm. to do yard work for Art Holmes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, was yeah. p- part of how I got better grades, I think, but yeah. no, I'm joking. <laughs> but the, uh, but you know, but it was that idea that you were encouraged at that time at Wheaton, and part of the reason I loved it, and part of the reason we started a secret society called the Church of Reason, and we started an underground newspaper, and we're pushing the boundaries probably in good and bad ways, but you know, but we just felt like we were empowered to do that. Right. It was okay to right. do that. Absolutely, um, it's the right thing to do, in fact. Yeah, and it seems like you feel like we've lost some of that at Wheaton. Yeah. Oh, very much, yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I kind of took us off your Facebook question, but that no, was, okay. I mean, yeah. the idea for me was to, that's what my Facebook was for. It was mm. to not, um, not to be a polemic, uh, mm. to, to put polemical statements out and or, uh, I don't do the Socratic, like make statements, provocative statements and have people reply. I just really wanted, some of it was a reflection of my own justice commitments, um, but not in a way that I felt was intensely partisan. And I think the problem with Facebook is people um, can still hide. The posts aren't anonymous, but people say things on Facebook that they would never say to your face, mm-hmm. that they would never say in a real conversation if they're sitting across from you. Right. Right? Um, and we all suffer from the inability to see body language, but when I read the friend's post, I try to read that person into the, the, the type mm-hmm. set on the page. Um, and, if <coughs> I, and if I don't like... Um, what someone says, I try to step back right. and say, but I know this person and or I just don't need to comment on this, right? Sure. If I can't, if I have nothing positive to say, I will say nothing um, or let the let the thread continue. So I didn't post that with the intention of um, starting even a, like, I wanted to start an embodied um kind of dialogue, if you will, a narrative, but an intersubjective one, but not really an online one, right? I mean, and that's the that's just how I went about Facebook. So to many people's disappointment, I never replied to their things, and the comments don't bother me, right? I mean, the, like the evil comments, the rude mm-hmm. comments. Um, so the fact of the matter is um, many people betrayed their ugliness in, in that and um, tells you more about them than about you it does yeah. it does mm-hmm. um but those kinds of things like you said that was and it comes out of that same commitment to the liberal arts right back to your your comment that you just came to about ideally the liberal arts the christian liberal arts um are trying to do that push the envelope in that kind of educational way so and, and so what so so let's jump jump forward here so so what happened Linda, do you want to tell the story? Or sure, you... sure. So, um, I mean, and I will try and encapsulate it mm-hmm. in the interest of time. Um, that we could order some Bloody Marys and just go all day. Keep so going, yeah. No, we're, we're in New Orleans, yes, by yes, the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some venues would be nice. Um, yeah, so um, there was this... The nutshell of the story is that the, the controversy was extreme. It was swift. Um, the provost at Wheaton College suspended uh, Laricia within a couple of days. Um, he 
suspended her in a way that is actually not part of the faculty handbook. So this was sort of um, a made-up punishment um, for what she had done. She was asked to, um, to clarify some of the comments that she had made on Facebook. Um, and, and the gist of it was basically kind of proving that she was a Christian. And that she was in line with the statement of faith, right? In line with the statement of faith, which is... that's the litmus is, test that they use? Yes, the statement of faith is um, is sort of like an orthodox Christianity creed, if you will. That's the creed of the school, and it's, it's very... Most of it is orthodox. It's believing in, you know, God the Father and the Holy Spirit. It, I mean, it's... Is it effectively the Nicene Creed, or is it different? Kind of the bare essentials of that, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a bare bones, sort of, <clears throat> these are the things that you um, believe... All of the faculty signed that every single year. Which is by so this statement would be whether you were Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, or or Protestant. Would you kind of would it, anyone kind of agree with this statement? Probably be a no brainer for most Christians. Period. Yes. Okay. 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 So this is this is not an in depth. <clears throat> yes. There was no premillennialism, or some schools have that. There's no very specific theology, and it's a very general yeah. agreement that you have the basic tenets of a Christian faith in your personal belief structure. Yes. So, so this, uh, Rachel is asked to clarify, you know, basically, does she believe in the difference, does she know the difference between Islam and Christianity? I mean, that's a mm -hmm. gross overgeneralization, but it's those types of things, like sort of the issues that have been raised with her post, she was asked to clarify. Um, she did that uh, and submitted it. And, and that was with review from uh, New Testament scholars at Wheaton College, yes, correct? Mm -hmm. who, exactly. who agreed and approved it. Yes. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes. So um, they, um, they, they helped her craft that statement. She submitted it. The provost said, this is, this is beautiful. This answers all the questions well. Um, and, but that he wanted to continue the theological discussion with her. So basically, she, they set up a point and said, meet this point, and then you're in the clear. And then they said, okay, you've met that point, but now we've moved it a little bit. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to keep talking about this, even though you fully you know, have done what we've asked. And at that point, Larisha said, no, I'm not going to continue mm -hmm. doing this. And so that was also a big controversial moment that I think people latched on to to say, well, why wouldn't she continue talking to them? Which goes back to what I was saying earlier. The, the, the way it works in that culture is you're supposed to roll over and, and submit. Right. And uh, be subservient. And I was really proud of her that she didn't do that. And that's what they were looking for. Well, I mean, if I could jump in, I, I also was um, asked to pursue my academic career elsewhere when I was at Wheaton College. I like to think it was because I was just too good. <laughs> um, but that may not that may not be what the administration was feeling at the time. And um, yeah, but the, but the thing is, you know, the, the thing that I noticed when when I would go in, and I got called in to see the deans a lot. I, as a good friend of mine, Neil, Neil Carlson, who's helping us do the screening at Calvin, he was on the the record staff, the newspaper staff, and he was a columnist. When I got kicked out of Wheaton, he said. Vanderveen, you getting kicked out for a poem, which is what I got kicked out for, is like busting out Capone for tax evasion. <laughs> I'm very happy to admit that I, there were lots of reasons for Wheaton to get rid of me. Um, we were breaking most of the rules in the pledge. Um, but the but the the thing that uh, that I noticed when I would go in and get called in, and I was doing it as a student, not as a professor, but I think the, the behavior was really similar, was it would start with, well, somebody said you did this, yeah. and I said, well, did they see me do it or did they hear about me doing it? And then they'd say, well, they, 
they heard about you doing it. I said, well, you know, the way I read the Bible is they're supposed to come to talk to me first and they haven't done that. So, you know, so it'd get done. And I said, but if they want to come in and, and bring the person who saw me doing this and we want to talk about it, I'd be happy to address this gossip. But this is gossip at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then so, you know, they didn't always like that. But they were expecting me to just answer the question. And then what would happen a lot is then the, the dean or the vice president of student development, depending on how serious they thought the infraction was, I got the pleasure of meeting with all of them at some point. Um, they would start going on what I would call a fishing expedition. They start asking me, well, what about this? Have you, but have you ever broken the pledge? And I said, look, I'm not here. And I would just say that I'm not here for a fishing expedition. Mm-hmm. If you've got specific questions from people who observe me doing something, I'm happy to answer them. But, you know, uh, Not increment, increment yeah, this is that. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I think, Luis, to your point, I think you were just saying, look, I've answered the question. This is a valid, you know, this is a statement that's been validated by mm-hmm. the, the people who are experts on this topic at this school. Mm-hmm. What do we, what do we, I mean, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth and I'm not speaking for you, but no, yeah, but I'm just, um, and I'm not asking you to respond to this because I know you, there's, you're under some legal uh, boundaries. You can't talk about some of this, these things. But Well, if I can yeah. jump in, I, mean, yeah. I, I will tell you, um, as a filmmaker and a storyteller, um, one of the things that I realized in my very first interview with Larisha, which was in the middle of this controversy, this, this controversy lasted for, for two months, and then basically she was forced out of the school is what it comes down to. Right. right? So... She, the, the spoiler alert for your audience is that she ended up um, losing her job. So well, this was national uh, news, so not a huge yeah, spoiler. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I'm just saying, <laughs> the people on the edge of their seats right now. Um, what happened? But, <laughs> but you know, when I the very first time that I interviewed Larisha, this was a big question in my mind because you know I read that she had stopped. She had said, "I'm not going to have any further conversation." And I and as somebody raised in an authoritarian evangelical culture. I've had that like, oh, well, you know, you're not Mm -hmm. supposed to do that. That's not how you, those aren't the rules. That's not what you do. You know, unlike you, David, who is able to buck the authoritarian culture. um, I didn't didn't realize there was an authoritarian culture. I know, I know, exactly. (laughs) Some of us um, submit to that more easily. As a woman, I also, part of being a woman in this culture is that you're very much trained to do that because, you know, otherwise you're a bad girl. Yeah. Um, So... As I interviewed Larisha and learned, you know, we, we talked for so long and I'm asking her questions that her background or history and she's telling me about growing up in Oklahoma City. She's uh, being baptized by her father, um, an African-American uh, Baptist minister who, uh, you know, it's just beautiful, rich family of faith. And as part of her story, I'm also learning some of the racism that she experienced as, um, as a young child in the educational system that she and her sisters did. And I will tell you, first of all, so one of the stories that's in the film is how um, because they are African-American, they basically were put in the lowest level classes. Well, you have to listen to Larisha speak for maybe five minutes to realize she's pretty bright. Like she does not belo- belong in the lowest level of class. Yeah, so, you know. I know at least one of your sisters is a medical doctor. Is that yes. right, mm-hmm. So I mean And the other is an attorney. Right. So yes. they're all very bright, talented <laughs> yeah. women. Yeah. Right, right. So these are these are this is an incredibly bright family. Mm-hmm. But because a very they wrote strong a bus family. 
from yes. um, from the only community you could buy a house in as an African American yes. in Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. they were put into the slow learner group. Is yes, that right? exactly. Is that, that was part of the structure of the school. Exactly. The systemic racism in the mm-hmm. in the educational system. Exactly. And her mm-hmm. mother had to go to the board of education to have them tested to get them in the appropriate class, which for all of them were the top classes. So, my point is, as I'm I'm listening to her and kind of putting myself in her shoes, I had an epiphany as a filmmaker. And I thought to myself, and I've never said this to Larisha, but I realized, oh, that's why she can't back down to them. Because she's fought her whole life to prove basic things Right. Mm-hmm. About who she is, and I've mm-hmm. never had to do that. In this power ever. structure, right? Yes. I mean, here's, so, so here's an interesting... So I joke about the fact that I you know, was vaguely aware that there were people there trying to have authority over us. I mean, I knew that was going on, but I think when you... Look, I'm born, I'm very white. Yeah. Right? I come from a, a family that's... Caucasian. But, but you know, but, I mean, my family's entirely Dutch Americans. Right. We are recent immigrants, but, um, you know, blonde hair, blue eye, whatever. It's all the things that, that mm-hmm. you can equate with that. But I, I, I think my point is when you're coming from that background... Um, I was fortunate enough that we lived in Baltimore in D.C. where I was a minority in my communities, right? So I did understand. I had friends who were very different colors and had very different cultural heritage. And um, and I was not the majority in those communities. So I did come from that when I was very young. And then we moved back to West Michigan where everybody's just like me. And I was at first I was like, this is great. Man, everyone's so nice. Every, I get a, you know, they're so easy. And then you start to realize, well, wait a minute, there's a sub, there's a sub layer, a subtext to this where they'll say, yeah, but you weren't born here. Yeah, but you know, you have a little bit different accent. Your clothes are a little different. You're not from West Michigan. It gets very parochial very quickly when you dig into it. And um, it's all that us, them stuff. You've got to somehow divide everybody into us and them. It's always this division, always walls going up. And I think the thing that struck me was, um, you know, when I was at, at Wheaton as an example, I grew up in a lot of those rules, so I knew how to bend the rules without necessarily breaking them. I knew where I could play around the edges, and I was yeah. pretty good at it, yeah. which is why they wouldn't even they wouldn't even have a discussion or debate with me when they finally kicked me out of Wheaton because mm-hmm. they said I was too slick and slippery, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I took as a high as, as high praise. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah for them, that's like wow, my job. Yeah, yeah like, like wizardry level, you know, twenty third level bard or something. Yeah. But the um, slick and slippery experts, they said. Yeah, slippery. yeah. That's like you know, like my my mother, who I love sometimes, will say, "Don't get too you know uh, too intellectual." You know, like that's a mm-hmm. bad thing. But the um, I, but I, I guess the thing that I'm getting into is um, I knew the rules, I knew how to get around them, I knew you know I didn't have the same prejudices as a white male in that community because I could be a leader, right? Mm-hmm. You, you can be a leader in a church if you're a man, right. you know. Right. Um, apparently you have to have male genitalia to yes, do that. Yes. I didn't realize that right. was a, yeah. right. but, uh, one of my friends is a, a woman pastor says, I hardly ever write my sermons with my vagina. <laughs> <laughs> I actually encouraged one of our young female leaders in our business who was told she couldn't do something because she was a woman. I said, all you got to do is just, you know, I can, you can buy a, a dick and you can buy a dildo a <laughs> and then you can do all this stuff. Okay. Yeah. Now, now we've accomplished. <laughs> we but can I, finish now. But, but, but I think the point, like, I guess the point I'm trying to get to is I, 
I wrote a piece for Sojourners because my older son was at Kenyon College in his third year, and they had just read some really interesting critical um, commentary on Mark Twain. And my question was, okay, there's, there is systemic, I feel, I can feel the systemic racism from California, you know, mm-hmm. reading the, seeing the news and hearing mm-hmm. what's going on and mm-hmm. talking to Linda. Um, but are the people who are doing it aware of it? Mm-hmm. You know, in the, in the RBG documentary, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's documentary, mm-hmm. her biggest struggle in fighting for equal rights for women, not extra rights, just the same rights as any guy. Mm-hmm was getting male justices to recognize that it was even going on because they didn't live in it. They weren't under the same boot, right? Right, and that's exactly the, for me, that was that moment Mm -hmm. of realizing, um, and it's so basic, it's it's so elemental that it sounds stupid when you say it out loud, but to realize like, oh wow, her experience is mm. so different than mine, even though she's she's bright and, you know, on the surface there are shared cultural things that we have, but yet she has these experiences that I haven't had that make it mm. impossible for her to play the game the way I could without mm. losing her dignity. And for me, I wouldn't lose my dignity. Yep. I could do what Michael did. And Michael, I think, articulates that so beautifully in the film that he knew the rules he could... Play it by the rules. It's like to grovel and well, say, yeah, so sorry. Yeah. Your buddy's you can expose gonna text your belly you. and get right yeah. back up and be in the same position. Yeah. She couldn't. And that's what enraged <laughs> me and why I really started ramping things up at that point when they started demanding more from Larisha because I saw this is just So you were in a you were in a faculty staff meeting mm-hmm. while this was going on and one of the female professors okay, yeah, one of the professors says Said to, said, asked the, the group, has yeah. this ever happened? Does anybody happened? know of a white male with tenure who did something similar to Marisha but was treated differently? And what did you say? And I said, that's me. Because you had been treated differently. Yeah, and they said, these are equally problematic, the things you did. And Stan even said that. Mm-hmm. And then you were being interviewed by Time Magazine um, around yeah, this story. Somebody, I, think, I assume somebody in the faculty talked to the reporter who was also a Wheaton alum. Right, and she was so she was asking you about yeah. this, what, what was going on, and then this came up, and um, and you want to kind of t- fill in the story from there. Yeah, and she said, I, I know you could, I, I know that the Wheaton administration will probably punish you if you talk to me about this, but I, and I think it's important, and that it didn't take long. And I just I said, well, just let me think about it a couple of minutes. She just stayed on the line, and I just thought and and prayed for a couple of minutes, and immediately just knew and fully admired is not right for me to be treated so well while Larisha is being treated like crap. That's just not right. It's, and it is about race, and it is about gender. And I think in Letter from a Birmingham Jail, Martin Luther King talks about the fact that you expect people who are overtly racist to be overtly racist, and yeah. that's less offensive right. than people who aren't, yep. who should be fighting for it when they stay silent, right? That silence is even more... Yeah, more, and, and yeah. that's when I said I cannot be implicitly going along with this and saying I approve of how this is happening, but which is what will happen if, because what comes with a white male body is all this baggage of, I get these assumptions, I get, I get given the benefit of the doubt every time, as I was in this situation, I get supported and helped out of it. Right, your, your buddy who's the provost is gonna text you and help you solve your problem, mm-hmm. but he's not gonna text Larisha because you're not part of the, the men's club, mm-hmm. right? And it's and, 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 and it's and not he, the first time it happened to Larissa, and I knew that. She, yeah, was, and, she was getting called in for, and what I what I could see, what I felt really confident of it, from within, being within the community, was she was getting called in and being said, being told, please prove you're not too black for us. 
Right. And do you, do you feel like, so help me, because when I wrote my piece, the Time Magazine article hadn't come out yet. And so I was saying, what I was trying to say in there was, I think there's systemic racism going on here and prejudice. Mm-hmm. I don't think... I think Stan Jones and Phil Reichen are probably well-intended mm-hmm. and the board maybe even is well-intended, even though their behaviors don't feel that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, what I was after saying, I saw about the, badness, it's about blindness. After the I saw the time is, piece, I started to change my opinion. As administrators of a college like this, they should see better than this. They should have yeah. heard enough stories, enough of Larisha's story and other people's story to recognize, wait a minute, we can't be treating somebody like this. What do you think about the... I mean, the intent does kind of matter because that takes it from something that you're not aware that you're doing, which still is bad. It's still, the results are the same. But I think if it's intended, then it becomes a different level of, of uh, I don't, you know, of yeah. evil or whatever, um, for lack of a better term. Um, what's your, you know these, you know these people better than, mm-hmm. than most of us sitting here. Mm-hmm. What's your feeling about their intentions when this was going on? What do you think they were intending to do? How much did they see or not see? They were was? intending to protect the reputation and the history of Wheaton College and, and evangelicalism. Uh, and, that's, and that's also what bothered me so much. It wasn't about the statement of faith because they never did uh, establish any way that she had gone against the statement of faith. It was about evangelical taboos of the subculture. It, it was the unspoken rules that had been broken. Wheaton does not actually have a position on whether Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Mm-hmm. And yet that is what they pinned this whole thing on. Right. And Franklin Graham jumped into yeah. this, uh, yeah. unlike his father. Um, yeah. He, he jumped in and had opinions that were uh, very extreme very quickly. But, you know, and to, to piggyback on what Michael was saying, I've thought a lot of, about this as well. Um, I think whenever we defend an institution as opposed to defending an individual, we run into trouble. Right. You look at the Catholic Church. When you defend a system versus a person. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, and, and it actually very much goes against the model of Jesus. So mm-hmm. if you believe in Jesus and attempt to follow him, what did Jesus do? He said With he's, the institutions he's, of his time. He's, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and also that he's the good shepherd who goes after the one sheep. He always leaves the 99. He always goes and finds the one sheep. And so I think that we really need to think long and hard about our approach to systems. And I don't, I I feel like some evangelical Christians are not doing the work with that. They're not thinking that through. And and it's, it's fascinating to me as somebody who grew up in the evangelical community where I was taught that the sins of the fathers are visited from generation to generation, right? We believe that. Which is pretty damning, right? Right. It means we're all alive. But, but yet, but yeah. these, these, you will have people who will say that in one breath, and on the other hand, deny that there is such a thing as systemic racism. Yeah. They don't have but eyes to I see it. They don't so understand I, it. I don't need to feel guilty. Exactly. About that. Or, or, you know. Or, yeah. Or even I would, I would even say, let's assume for sake of the argument that Larisha did something horrible and and promoted a heresy to her students. Let's let's assume that just for the argument okay. for a second. Um, if that's true then wouldn't we want to reach out to our sister and try and resolve this and try and bring her back into this, this, this great body of believers that we're all a part of because it's so important to us? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the criticisms of particularly evangelical Christianity is we tend to shoot our wounded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I think we all agree we're all wounded to start with, mm-hmm. you know, right. except for apparently somebody who's protecting all this perfect information that they have that the rest mm-hmm. of us don't have. Yeah. Um, and, you know, which is, which is frankly a Gnostic heresy. Um, yes. So if... 
you know, it's this dualism that, that lives within the context of, our, of, of this behavior that we don't want to talk about sometimes. Mm-hmm. That somebody has secret information that nobody else has, that if you're not keeping the secret information, now we're going to have to kick you out and build a wall around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what was, what was kind of even, in a way, it's, it's part of the system itself. Mm-hmm. That rather than embrace somebody, if they had done, I'm not saying that Larisha did something wrong here. I think you did everything right. I think it's what you should be doing as a political science but professor. You could think I did something wrong. But let's assume, okay. let's yeah. assume, let's assume, exactly, yes. let's yes. assume yes. you did something wrong. Yeah. Right. So, Sorry, so, so exactly. So, so let's assume you did something wrong. It was, you know, you shouldn't have done it. Okay, great. How do we bring you back? Mm-hmm. How do we look for that lost sheep? If, if she is a lost sheep, I'm not right, saying you were, right. but let's, if you were, right. how do we drop everything we're doing to bring you back in, to build common ground, to, be, to, to make you part of us again if you've, if you've separated yourself, inadvertently or advertently? And the great hypocrisy is, we, like a lot of organizations, is saying we, we want diversity. But what gets exposed is what they, they clearly don't understand the reason for that because... The point of bringing in people with different voices is we need to change because we need to incorporate their voices and begin to be able to see and hear and understand from their perspective. So you don't bring in people with a different perspective and then say, wait a minute, you don't sound enough like us. Right, right. You, don't, you didn't sound like a white male evangelical when you said yeah, that. Yeah, we need you to conform to the norm. Right. Well, this was, you know, when, when, when Phil, when Phil Reichen came in, I was really optimistic because we were at Wheaton about the same time. And uh, he was a senior when I was a freshman. I didn't know him, but you know, at least we're in the same generation, more or less. And I had some some Wheaton friends who brought me back to the school, and I gave a little money. And Phil was talking about globalization, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Everyone was reading Life Together, which is a great book about how our relationships are with Christ, not 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 really with each other unless it's through Christ. I was on one of the panels that the hmm. university-wide panels that they assembled on Life Together. No, it I was. Just remembered that. And he, and also in that book, he says the purpose of community is to be a crucible, to change you and purify you, and it's going to be awful and painful. You need to be changed by those that see things differently than you. No, and and so, <clears throat> you know, he was talking about everyone at Wheaton. Every student was going to have to leave and go overseas and live someplace else, another culture, and then come back as part of their Wheaton career. I thought I said that's great. You travel and immersion is so important to understanding and, and empathy and inclusion. And then I went to a, a chapel where they had a Dietrich Bonhoeffer expert who talked about how Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran, leaves Germany to come to America, has kind of this big epiphany about, um, you know, a broader Christianity, a Christianity that, you know, kind of is less about religion and denomination and much more about, um, you know, kind of getting to the God it's, itself rather than, um, you know, specific theologies. And then when Hitler comes to power, he goes back to Germany. He feels called to go back and fight back somehow. So he starts this kind of this free Christian um, seminary. And the German Lutheran church fathers rejected him. Hmm. And one of the things, I wrote this letter to, to Phil and I said, look, I think this is brilliant. I think if you send all of these kids out into the world and then they come back to Wheaton, it can't help but transform the school. I said, the question I think you have to ask is, are you going to be the German church fathers? Or are you going to create a place for these kids to come back where it can't help but become something bigger, more wonderful, more inclusive, and more empathetic? And of course, I didn't get—I didn't really get a response to that letter. Um, and that's about the time where I—I I kind of pulled back because I started to see a bunch of. Yeah. It seemed to be much more um, restrictive as a community than when, even when I was there twenty odd years before. Mm-hmm. 
And, when, and I, in that same conversation, I used to at faculty meetings and you know, other places on campus say, why are we only talking about sending students to other countries and other continents? Why don't we send them you know, into an inner city neighborhood? Why don't we send them to the reservation? Right. Why does right. it have to be someplace else? We've right. got more than enough diversity right here all around there's, us. There's We're plenty of aliens in our midst, right? Yeah. Yes. So let me ask, um, maybe bring this into a little bit of a summary or, or conclusion. It's a big question I have at the end, which is, um, you know, with the Kick Aspirational podcast, we talk about breaking through barriers, taking control of your life mm-hmm. to the degree you can, and and um, creating the life you want rather than the one that you're being offered by somebody else. Rather mm-hmm. than, you know, sometimes it's good to roll over and, and you know expose your belly. Sometimes it's better to to stand up for yourself, depending on the circumstances. Mm-hmm. In this sense, I think a big part of what the film has been about. The reason I was interested to help support it. Um, Linda was I think owning your own narrative is mm-hmm. really important, particularly when you're coming out of what I would consider a very abusive situation. Mm-hmm. And I'm not putting words in anybody's mouth. That's mm-hmm. how I view it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think has this film project been healing for I think for all of you? And do you think that there's potential? Is one of the goals to build common ground Absolutely. with people who might disagree with the film? Absolutely. I mean, I guess I'd love to hear different perspectives on that, what, what, what your thoughts are. One of the things I've loved the most about going to these screenings is the conversations afterward with people from the audience. And what I keep hearing over and over is people hungry, especially former evangelicals. You know, I've had Wheaton alumni and just a lot of people come to these that say, I used to be in the church and I love Jesus, but I just was, became so... Uh, Frustrated with you know the leadership and you know what what evangelicalism has come to stand for that I couldn't be part of that anymore and so you're talking about kind of creating your own life and your own self I think people are looking where's this faith that I want and I once had and and people are seeing in in the film okay maybe it's still possible to be like that maybe you know because I would say that we were really trying to be like Jesus in, right. in this situation and it's really ironic that that put us at odds with so many people in the Christian world. With, with a religious construct, effectively. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So a lot of people are coming hungry for that. Could We need more of this. Can we find is, is this? You know, are we going to be able to find this? And I think there's a, a desire for that. I've, I've heard a lot of those kind of stories. Larissa, is there anything you want to comment about? Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I think I, um, I feel similarly that one of the, since this is our second festival, the conversations have been enlightening and empowering. Um, I think the most important thing that I learned as a professor was you just meet people where they are and all of us want to be met where we are um, on our journey. Um, and to be not only met but accepted where we are on our journey. Um, and hopefully also brave enough to be challenged from within and challenged from without. Um, to move toward, you know, towards your theme of Kick Aspirational, to move toward the better versions of ourselves. Um, and we need community to do that. And so I, I want to be clear that my eight and a half years at Wheaton, they say Wheaton. Um, Wheaton, yeah. I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma, let's be real. I would say Wheaton. 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 No, like um, my eight and a half say, years yeah. at Wheaton, Wheaton <laughs> College, um, were always difficult and I think one of the things that um, has been healing is I've been able to continue that goal like to be an embodied question mark 
to invite people into conversation. <laughs> Hopefully to, in these film festivals, be inspiring, but, but mainly to be inspired by the people that <laughs> I meet um, and encounter. Um, every time I watch Michael and Patty, Michael's wife, um, who couldn't be here um, for this festival, it, it reminds me of their sacrifice too, right? So um, there's a Muslim, um, I hope everyone gets to watch the film, um, shameless self-promotion, but or shameless Linda promotion. <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, it's a really great documentary. Uh, because, yeah. I mean, for me to see a young Muslim woman um, inspired yes. and... And saying, I'm going to stand up for right. justice. Right, and yeah. that's, the goal was, like a friend of mine says in the film, Larisha's target was the Muslim women. If mm-hmm. no one else saw it, if no one else liked the post, really, the goal was solidarity mm-hmm. with um, a group of women in particular who were being oppressed. And so, um, so yeah, I think the film has been healing in that way, but um, in terms of, um, again, kick aspirationalism, um, it, 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 it is a religion. It is a... Kind of related um, to dudism. Yeah, well, it's oh, like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a... Um, it's one of those things that I feel is um, is going to hopefully transform this moment for me personally. I mean, it's it's still a difficult. Um, it is difficult, but I think I was I started to say my eight and a half years at Wheaton, I would not trade for anything in the world. They've mm. they're they're part of that process of me becoming my better self, um, and so I know that this difficult last almost three years now have will be transformed and they're in the process of being transformed um, and I'm, I'm on this journey and mm. hanging on for dear life um, but and well, hopefully like and, and now you're, you're able to let go a little as well yeah and, and just for the record to you you're now at uh, University of Virginia yeah. UVA um, so I have a one-year um, teaching position there and so I'm jointly appointed in the politics and religious studies department so teaching at UVA and doing research and and um, helping support this film. Is this story a part of what you're teaching and working on now? It is. Um, I, you know, I can't teach a class without kind of telling my students about this and which is a kind of strange thing because it's kind of transformed a little bit my own self-presentation obviously so it was awkward the very first time I had to step in a classroom a year ago and say, oh, I don't know how to say this, but... How do I talk about myself, but I need to talk about myself. So I was like, yeah. I have mm-hmm. to tell them because Linda's going to be filming. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. so I, I just did it on the first day. Uh, I said, you, you know, y'all can use the Google and find my name. And if you type in my <laughs> name, a New York Times article is going to be the first thing that pops up. So um, so just, it, it is, it is who... I am. And so it's mm-hmm. it's unnatural and natural. The unnatural part is like, yeah, uh, come come watch my film. That's not an assignment, but because mm. it'll be at the Charlotte, it'll be at the Virginia Film Festival in Charlottesville next and month. Charlottesville too. is where UVA is. So it, it, yeah, yeah, sorry, that's where the University of Virginia is. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I lost that of your like follow up question, but but that's where I am now, yeah, University so of Virginia. Yeah, so so you're at UVA. The story that the story that you know, has, is being told about you and largely a lot of it's by you, um, where you can talk about your story because mm-hmm. you do have some limitations on that mm-hmm. in public. 
Um, you're objectively telling the facts of what happened, your yeah. feelings about yeah. that time. Yeah. I thought, I thought watching the final cut, which I hadn't seen before, um, I've seen much, a lot of cuts up to it, was incredibly fair to Wheaton College, mm -hmm. um, maybe fairer than I would have been, but I'm trying to become less uh, violent in my communication. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, neither of us want to attack Wheaton College. I mean, it's, between being an undergrad and teaching, I've given three decades of my life to Wheaton College. I believe in it. It's, if anything, I want to see it be better. And, and Michael, you were, you're not at Wheaton anymore. No. You, were, uh, you had a stroke and had some issues, but you also were not allowed to continue after a certain point. Right. Yeah, when all of this was going on, I made a request to be able to stay on half-time that was denied. Uh, it's hard to not feel that it was in part because I had not uh, followed the rules of defending the, the system. A school that's based on justice, supposedly, mm, yeah. um, kicks you out for being a whistleblower. And basically for sharing some of your information about what was going on behind the scenes, mm -hmm. which you, 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 way, you would hope a Christian college would want to be transparent, right? Yeah. The reason you're very kind to, to talk about you know, what it does cost me, but I just wanted to be really clear. I haven't suffered because of this. I've had some losses, in a, which I gladly uh, endured for the purpose of uh, standing up for what's more important than my comfort. So it, um, it's just it's just that important that we, we see these things. That we ha and you have to, and you've always taught so well that we have to take risks. That's, that's what it's all about. Well, and Larisha, um, you know, Larisha isn't going to say this, but I think when you see the film, you'll, you will see that she has suffered. She, she lost everything, basically. Um, because of this moment of embodied solidarity um, and continues to to work through that and sort of a journey of grief and pain and um, you know she's displaced she's going back and forth she, she lost her home she lost her community um, you know and I think that comes out when you see the film um, but to your point that I was was, fair to Wheaton, um, I didn't feel like the intent of the story was to make Wheaton look bad. No. Um, it was to tell the story. It mm -hmm. was to tell the story. Wheaton looks plenty bad on their own without my help. Yeah. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I felt like by telling what happened, um, and, 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 and to the facts be, speak for themselves. Yeah, and yeah. to be fair to them, you know, the provost made a public apology before mm -hmm. the end of this that, I mean, I... I I don't know that they think that they handled this well. On the other hand, I they refuse to participate in the film, right? So well, what they think is is a big mystery. But there was a statement that just came out that from the board of trustees that you know Phil Reichen presented re fairly recently that was something to the effect of, at least the way I read it, was school didn't think they handled this very well, and so I reached out to Phil and said, hey, you know what? What a great opportunity. We have this new, new documentary that, that would be a great way for the school to actually recognize what you're saying and do something. Yes. I mean, with my kids, if they apologize, you actually got to do something about it, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and the reconciliation yeah. that they have how talked about, this? how to own it, right? Yeah, versus just yeah. say something. And what right? was the response? Uh, yeah, they didn't want to show the film at the school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, was, that was the only response yeah. I got. Yeah. Um, but... but but I, I bring this up to say that um, I one of the criticisms I've gotten for the film is that I was too gentle on 
Wheaton. And I, it wasn't a matter of being gentle or not being gentle. But it's a documentary. It doesn't make any conclusions. It doesn't say this or that. It just says here this. It's not judging involved, Wheaton. No. Saying well, that, how it felt to them. Right, right. Yeah. But it, to, from, as a filmmaker, the film is not about them. Right. They had their day in the sun. Yeah. They had their moment. They had their chance to, to tell that narrative. This is Larisha's story, and right. I and that was the intent of the film to document her journey, and to for her to have a voice, for her to be heard in a way that she wasn't heard from the moment that she posted that photo. Mm-hmm. She, her voice was eclipsed. Her reasons for doing this were eclipsed. So that that is what the focus of the film became about, and I do believe that that's what people are responding to. When they see it, I think that they're inspired by her act of self-sacrifice, and we don't see that in our world very often. Um, there aren't a lot of models of that because I think what we see it's too are, scary. It's scary, and I think you mm-hmm. see a lot of people who say that they're Christians who are very invested in hanging onto power, protecting themselves, and getting more power. And mm-hmm. this is a story of a woman who did the exact opposite of that. Um, and suffered mightily with the consequences, but I believe um, is ultimately, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. will be victorious because of that. I mean, I think she will kick ass to get back to kick mm-hmm. aspirational. Well, no, for sure. No, I, and I think this does that. I, I think, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting, if you know, when we're talking about uh, Jesus visiting the Samaritans, the clean and the unclean, there are a lot of people, in, particularly in fundamentalism and evangelical Christianity, who cling to purity. Yes. And this concept of, you know, truth, meaning, you know, this is true, that's not. There's these binary concepts. And, and we're going to be in truth, and they're going to be not truth. I'm going to be clean, they're going to be not clean. But embodied solidarity or empathy, compassion, suffering with somebody is all about getting getting dirty. Yeah. It's Put about suffering with them. Yeah. 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 Put your it's body a, where your mouth is. And in this case, I think, Larisha, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, you know, you weren't quite sh- aware that you were going to be signing up for so much empathy and compassion <laughs> yeah. as, you, as you did. <laughs> I mean, so, I, I mean, you just don't know. But, like, you know when it's right. And, and I don't, one thing I can say is I just have zero regrets, you know, when I, I prefaced some statement during this, um, during our conversation today as with the fact that I'm a perfectionist, I have to plan to be spontaneous. <laughs> I'm also notorious for saying after the fact, well, if I had done this, or if I had said that, or if I hadn't said this, or if I hadn't done that, and I just have none of those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's for, that's a miracle for me. Um, that I can look back and say, I knew without a doubt that I was supposed to do what I did. And there, this was not a flagrant foul. This was a, um, a desire to move forward in my faith and to challenge myself, to, to um, live the, the dynamic um, inward life of the soul externalized into the world that I think Jesus calls us to do, to embody. And so, yeah, suffering with, you don't know what shape that's going to take, and that may shape shift over time, um, what that looks like. Um, For some people, that might be uh, literally not shaking their crying baby. Like, there are people suffering in ways that I can't 
I mean, like when they have um, postpartum depression, right? Like there are ways that people suffer that I can't know or see. So this isn't calling people to jump off bridges or do the most crazy thing to them. And that, that wasn't what I saw this as, right? And I, but I also want to say, I don't see embodied solidarity, and I'm not trying to mince words, um, as sacrifice. I think it's what Christians are called to do. If we are to be the radical, the followers of a radical Jesus or the radical followers of that radical Jesus that I believe we're called to do, and radical just means to the root, rooting out, being rooted, that that just means walking, like having our eyes open to see those around us. And if we do, we will always see injustice. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and we're called to walk into that. Um, and, and to I, get dirty. Right? Yeah, and to get dirty. But we have to do the soul work to know that. Um, and, and I will say... And it's not worth getting dirty for. What's the point? I mean, that's, yeah. That, like, part of what I did when I went to Wheaton is I prayed several prayers. One of them was that I would never be comfortable there. Mm. I was never comfortable at Wheaton. Not one day. Not one day was I comfortable mm. in that place. I was, it was made clear to me that my body um, mm. did not comport um, mm. with the kind of constitution of white evangelicalism. Mm. Um, but I also prayed that I would never make peace with oppression. Mm. Um, and that was a prayer that I also imparted to my students and I think that we have to pray dangerous prayers. I know some of your listeners are not particularly religious. Set dangerous intentions <clears throat> and be committed to those, whether as mantras, as things we meditate on, um, um, just who do I want to be in the world and letting that permeate our inner being such that it just oozes out of our pores. Um, and I'm not sure that I would be sitting in this position as opposed to sit, still sitting in a classroom at Wheaton if I hadn't prayed those dangerous prayers, set those dangerous intentions. Um, and so I'm, I'm more than convinced that that I'm in the right place. Um, painful though it may be, um, embodied solidarity is worth the cost is what I say. I think that's a great place to... Um to wrap this up, you know, the Kick Aspirational podcast is an interactive experience. We would like to hear your comments, questions, and uh, the most important thing is we hope that you choose to be Kick Aspirational. Um, there is a Same God Film uh, website, samegod.com. Samegodfilm.com. Same yes. And on, on uh, Instagram, it's Same God Film. It's at Same God Film, right? Is that right? Yes. Linda? So it's all of our social media is at Same God Film. That's so okay. Facebook, Twitter, Everything's Instagram, Same God Film. the website, Same God Film. Um, look it up. Follow us. We have newsletters. Um, we, have we have screenings, screenings going on. happening not, not only around the country that are popping up now every week, but around the world. Um, we are screening at the Cork Film Festival in Ireland it's amazing. next month, which is super exciting. Um, we've had a lot of interest from the UK. Um, and if people want to screen countries. the film, is there, should they get in touch with you? Maybe send a yes. message to... Go to the DM. website, yeah. samegodfilm.com, yeah. and there is a link to, um, the, to submit a form to request a screening. And you fill that form out and give some information about the type of event, if you're charging fees, that sort of thing. And then we um, can sort of figure out how to make that happen. From there. Yeah. Linda, Larisha, Michael, mm -hmm. thank you very much for making time today in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks and I uh, can't wait to, to, to see where this journey takes us. Thanks, Thanks for having us.